I noticed, Alex, you were looking for the Nerf ball. No, no, not really. I was just looking around. It was like I had accused him of something. Oh, I see. Well, you know, you can go get it if you want. You don't have to wait. You don't have to ask. A couple of sessions later, that's exactly what he did. He got that Nerf ball and he wanted to play. Things started to unfold in this wonderful, natural way. A little at a time, his eyes brightened, became a little less frightened, a little more engaged and playful. And then there was a little impishness that came through. I felt thrilled, a bit of healthy aggression. He initiated some new games on his own. He threw the ball back to me a little too high, just above my reach, so I couldn't catch it. He threw it a little too hard. Sometimes it felt like he was trying to hit me with it. And all of this was accompanied by a slowly growing little smile. Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at ergonomy.org. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at a different kind of psychiatry.com or ergonomy.org. This episode features Dr. D. Apple and his treatment of Alex, who is a shy, sensitive boy who needed encouragement to face the world and take a chance. Following the presentation is a highlight from the audience discussion. Seven-year-old Alex stood awkwardly frozen in the doorway of my office. Never in 45 years of working with children had I seen a child so terrified and stuck, torn whether to come in or flee. I can't recall how I got him into the office, but I remember it was like trying to feed a deer. Even in the room, he stood there, timid and petrified. Alex, would you like to sit down on the couch? Oh, okay. As if he was responding to a criticism or a command. His parents had told me he's extremely shy, quiet, withdrawn socially, and lacking in confidence in himself. He wants to do everything perfectly. But this was really just the half of it. I had not imagined how anxious he was. He took no chances, always keeping half an eye on me at all times, trying to anticipate what I might want of him. And I found myself being very careful, unusually careful, trying to anticipate what might or might not work to engage him. It's nice to meet you, Alex. How is it for you to be here with me? How are you? 
uh, oh, okay, fine, I guess. I mean, I, is that what you mean? Uh, I'm, I don't know. He self-consciously covered his mouth with his hand as he spoke, made a cringing face as if he was embarrassed, then looked anxiously for a second to see my response. Noticing I was looking back, he quickly looked away, a frozen little rabbit trying to be invisible. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? How old are you? Seven, almost, in a week. I mean, like six days. Another anxious look my way, and just as quickly, he was gone. Oh, seven. Seven's a good age. What, what grade are you in school? Second. A glance and not a molecule more. I remember second grade. How do you like it? I, I, I like it some, I guess. I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, it's okay. I'm not sure. There was tension, no matter what I did or said. With questions like those trying to draw him out, he felt pressured to try to answer, painfully, awkwardly, mumbling and fumbling for words. But no questions left too much frightening silence and a lot of mounting anxiety. Do you like your teacher, Alex? Sort of. Maybe you like some things and not others. His eyes flared as if he'd been exposed. Maybe. I thought he might run out of the room. These questions, which often help engage a young patient and make them feel more relaxed, did not feel helpful at all with Alex. In the silent moments, Alex made fleeting eye contact with me, like an obedient boy, but he was frightened to look at me or be seen. His eyes darted back and forth, watching me, hiding, tense, unable to find a comfortable place to settle. Still, despite it all, I thought, what a sensitive, delightful boy this is. I really like this little boy. But am I making any progress with him? After four or five sessions, I was not at all sure. Then I gently tossed him a Nerf ball. I was thrilled. Alex could catch it well enough and he could throw it back accurately. Back and forth, back and forth, like rocking. His anxiety diminished a bit with each catch and throw back to me. For the first time, I felt we're together now, <clears throat> in contact. We have a relationship. Each toss brought us closer together. Throwing the ball back and forth gave us something we could do and do together, and he clearly enjoyed it. His tension lessened a bit. He was silent, but his body language was clear and said, this is good. I can do this. I am relieved. Thanks. The first peeking out of his shell and a sense of trust from him, I thought, there's a lot of life in this boy and was excited to learn more. 
The ball game gave me a chance to see a lot more about Alex. He would come into the room looking all around. Was he just looking for the Nerf ball? Was he just looking over where I keep them? Well, there it is again. I noticed, Alex, you were looking for the Nerf ball. No, no, not really. I was just looking around. It was like I had accused him of something. Oh, I see. Well, you know, you can go get it if you want. You don't have to wait. You don't have to ask. A couple of sessions later, that's exactly what he did. He got that Nerf ball and he wanted to play. Things started to unfold in this wonderful, natural way. A little at a time, his eyes brightened, became a little less frightened, a little more engaged and playful. And then there was a little impishness that came through. I felt thrilled, a bit of healthy aggression. He initiated some new games on his own. He threw the ball back to me a little too high, just above my reach, so I couldn't catch it. He threw it a little too hard. Sometimes it felt like he was trying to hit me with it. And all of this was accompanied by a slowly growing little smile. More aggression and mischievousness. I thought, this is, there's so much energy locked up in this quiet little boy. Bring it on. I decided to videotape him. This caused a small but temporary regression. Alex was anxious and self-conscious, clearly feeling watched. However, while trying to videotape him, he squirmed millimeter by millimeter so as to not be noticed over to the other side of the couch, taking himself out of the frame of the picture. I didn't point this out or say anything about it so as not to make him more self-conscious, but I just moved the camera and got him back in the frame. Then he slowly squirreled back the other way <laughs> with a little smile. I again moved the camera to get him back in the frame and he again moved slowly away with a little smile. This evolved into this delightful game between us, again, back and forth, back and forth, interacting. It felt like a little dance. No words were spoken, but he was clearly taking chances, doing more of what he wanted to do, being a little more assertive, and coming out of his shell. He soon discovered the foam bats I have in my office, and after some initial hesitation and with a little encouragement, he started sword fights with me. Later, he hit me with them, and increasingly vigorously. Later still, he piled the pillows in my office on top of me. A session or two later, he piled them on me and then jumped on them. He laughed with glee when I made noises like I was being painfully squashed. Soon his knees and his elbows were leading the way. He also ran into me while I held the foam pad, excited and delighting in letting me knock letting him knock me, knock me over. 
I made sure that he was focused and paying attention to what he was doing and not getting too wild or out of contact with himself. I was very careful to make sure he did not hurt me or get hurt. If Alex seemed to be getting a bit too wild, we stopped and threw the Nerf ball back and forth again, took deep breaths, settling him down and clearing his eyes before resuming his play. He continued unfolding, evolving new and creative ways to play more aggressively and to express himself with his unique issues even more subtly. For example, he once came and slowly petted my hand, looking at me with this exaggerated, fake, sweet look. And then he pinched me and ran away, <laughs> laughing. <laughs> and I had to always act surprised when he did that over and over. I thought, yes, very sweet boy indeed, but one with a wee bit of the devil in him. As he was more aggressive, he was also better able to speak up and express what he wanted to do or did not want to do. In later sessions, he sat on the side of the couch and talked the whole session. This is a boy that couldn't talk at all. Like a tight balloon, the air escaping after years of being held back, talking and making up for lost time. Alex had been in speech therapy for three years before I met him, but only now was his quiet, mumbling voice becoming louder and clearer. As his aggressive play plateaued, he brought in things he had made at home, art projects and other such things, describing them to me in intricate detail with clear pride and pleasure. He was delighted that I took interest in his creations. He also talked increasingly about the tension and stress that he experienced at home. Alex described the intensity of his parents fighting on a 10-point scale, comparing it to past fights. Well, my parents had another fight this weekend. Want to tell me about it? It was loud, but only about a six or seven. Not as bad as the worst one four months ago. That was eight or a nine. He looked sad, and he said so. There were many thrilling, satisfying moments in Alex's therapy, seeing this quiet little boy come alive and find himself, find his mojo, moving out into the world, becoming more fluid and graceful in his movements and way of living. Many of these changes were starting to generalize appropriately outside the office. He functioned with more of these changes at home and at school and spoke up more in both places. One of the highlights for me was his mother's report about a family Christmas dinner near the end of his treatment. Her somewhat snarky sister approached her and said, oh, so you finally decided to put Alex on medication. He looks great. He's so much more social now and talking so much more clearly. Of course, he was never on medication. What he was on was a role after doing a lot of good and serious play and work in therapy. Now in the eighth grade, Alex has moved to a new town but continues doing well. 
His mother checks in. I've seen him a couple of times since then just because he wants to come back to say hello. He still needs some help with his academic work. His parents divorced and are both happier. And he is doing well socially and emotionally. Thank you. You said it now top down and other places you talked about the structure of the, the child's defenses. Could you say more about how your understanding of that uh, helped you and how you understand the structure of his defenses? What, what does that mean with this particular kid? So, whatever he, this kid's actually probably easier than some kids to see his defenses because he's so anxious and he's not hidden. Uh, he does, didn't have a really well-developed facade, you know, he, he wasn't other than what he looked like. He would, you, know, you get what you, you see with this boy. So, what he was doing at the moment, at any given moment, was his best attempt to um, keep from being anxious. Everybody has a characteristic way of taking care of themselves when they feel anxious, because anxiety is a horrible feeling and we, we all want to get away from it if we can. And we develop these strategies, these, these characteristic ways of, of uh, keeping our anxiety in check. And some of those um, work, but they're at a great cost. You know, we're not as flexible anymore as, as we used to be. So with, with Alex, you know, the first thing was he was frozen. He was just terrified. Just stood there, you know, really literally unable to decide to come in or not. I don't even know if it was on the level of a decision. I think he was just really frozen. So, and like I said, I don't really remember how I got him in. I just sort of coaxed him into the room. And so I was dealing with that very first um, level of defense. And m my first um, attempts to deal with that, yeah, I'd give myself a C, maybe a C plus. <laughs> you know, not that I'm hard on myself. But they weren't really effective, and I think... I don't know what I would have done differently, but it, it was just good enough to keep him in the room, trying to talk to him, trying to engage him. Um, <coughs> nothing else happened, though, until I started having a relationship with him. And it was when I had a relationship with him, which is what happened when we were throwing the ball back and forth, that was sort of the portal through which most other things were able to happen, including addressing other defenses that came up, like walking in and um, maybe this was a little sneaky. He'd walk in and kind of look around and look around and you'd see him look over at something, but he was not going to take a chance and go get what he wanted. He'd learn not to. So in that, chat, in that example, um, that was like the next defense. Just say, it's okay, you can go get it. You don't have to ask or wait. Well, it took him two or three weeks to process that, and I didn't keep going at him about it, but he eventually tried it out and was rewarded by the experience he had afterwards by, it's okay, you know, it's okay to get it. He, he got what he wanted. So I don't, am I getting to it? Yeah. Yes. 
I'm interested to, to know what did you see in the boy, um, like in his eyes or his body language or relaxation or his anxiety that allowed you to make that decision to make that first toss of the, of the nerve ball? Like that was the moment of contact. How did it look? I mean, what did you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And it's a super good question because I, I don't really even know if I can answer it fully because I've asked myself the same question. What made me think I could get away with doing that? What if it had bonked him in the head? <laughs> you know? Um, the best I can remember, remember was uh, just, you know, seeing him sitting across from me. And there was something, it's almost like equal parts fear of interacting with me mixed with hunger, wanting to interact with me. He, he had not, his... His nature of reaching out and being sensitive and interested had not been reinforced and rewarded, you know. And so he was, if I could mimic him, he's kind of like from your me, he's sitting, he's kind of going. But he kept coming back, you know, he kept coming back. So Nerf Ball's really soft, how much damage could I do? I just thought, <laughs> let's try it, you know, and I just, you know, I, I, I remember kind of looking at him and like, like, is he gonna go like that or is he gonna run out of the room? So he, he, he got ready, so that was the sign and then it tossed it to him. And I, I never got into it in this write-up because it's kind of side the point, but it, that ball game evolved into lots of variations over the three years that I saw him. So we were, you know, at one point we were throwing two balls back and forth and then we were throwing two balls back and forth and saying the numbers. And then we were throwing two balls back and forth and saying the alphabet. And then I was saying the alphabet and he would say the numbers. One, A, two, B, and then he would have to say the alphabet. It's really hard for kids to do that. And there's some real integration going on there, uh, visually ocular integration um, and cognitive processing going on that's really helpful. So. But that's a very good question. I took a chance. How do you feel after hearing about Alex's case? What do you think? What stands out to me is that even before a therapist formulates a diagnosis, attempts some type of healing intervention, or even obtains a history, the prime focus is on establishing a connection. A patient needs to know, they get me, before therapy can truly start. Sometimes that doesn't happen right away. I'm not even sure tossing a ball would have worked on the first visit for Dr. Apple and Alex. But I'm sure glad it did when he threw it, because it was obvious that Alex benefited a lot from Dr. Apple's care, and you can tell that Dr. Apple enjoyed and valued their connection. We're interested in your questions and comments. I'd love to hear your feedback, and you can email us at aco at orgonomy.org. You can connect with us at orgonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. If you like our work, be sure to leave a rating and review. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. Stay tuned for next month's episode, where I'll sit down with Dr. Susan Marcel and hear how her path brought her to the ACO and medical organ therapy. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO.
Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.